As Michigan's most powerful and influential voice for business, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce stands ready to serve you. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com to learn more now. Carrie Jr. the second here, and before we get into the episode today, we want to update you on a story we previously told you about. On April 4th, 26-year-old Patrick Leolia, a Congolese refugee, was fatally shot by a white Grand Rapids police officer. An investigation was launched, and on Thursday, we learned the outcome. Kent County Prosecutor Chris Becker announced that the officer, Christopher Schur, would face a charge of second-degree murder. If he's convicted, he could be punished with life in prison with the possibility of parole. For more on the history of Grand Rapids policing and why some activists say Leoya's death was an inevitability, make sure to check out our previous episode on that topic. For more on the charge and what Leoya's family had to say, check out Freep.com. Okay, now for today's show. On June 1st, city officials gathered to raise a flag over Detroit's famous Spirit Plaza. It was the first day of Pride Month, and the flag raised was rainbow. But it may not have been the flag you've most often seen in support of the LGBTQ plus community, which stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning. This one had extra colors, black and brown for marginalized communities, pink, light blue, and white for transgender and non-binary individuals, and it had an arrow. It's a call for progress hanging over the city 50 years after the first City Pride Festival and echoing the spirit of that first Detroit march decades later. Oftentimes people are going to Motor City Pride or other prides with not necessarily knowing its origins. On this week's episode, we speak to historian Tim Retzloff, who just released a comic book about that first march. One in Detroit. To them, the idea of marching in the streets was was appalling because they had their lives to safeguard. The younger generation didn't have that mindset. We explore the history of Pride and the history of Motor City Pride, which drives tens of thousands of people to our streets every year and takes place on June 11th and 12th. I'm Carrie Jr. the second, and this is on the line. This little rainbow light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine. Um, so to get us started, could you introduce yourself for us, your, your name, title, occupation, uh, and what's your connection to this event? Um, sure. Uh, my name is Tim Rutzloff. I am an adjunct assistant professor at Michigan State University, where I teach um, history and LGBTQ studies. My connection to Motor City Pride is that... Um, Isabel Claire Paul and I have done this um, comic book to tell the story of the very first Pride uh, 50 years ago. Mm. So it's the story of the very first Pride. We'll get to that in a second. First thing I want to ask is, have you attended Motor City Pride, uh, ever been to it, and, and could you describe it if so? Um, I, the first one I ever attended was 1986 as a 22-year-old. 1986 was also the year that the Supreme Court 
um, had its ruling in Bowers versus Hardwick, which in which they decided that it was okay for states to criminalize sodomy um, and make our intimate lives criminal. Um, and that was a ruling that was not overturned until 2003. In some ways, it's like a big um, street festival. In some ways, it's like a big family reunion and a big party, which also kind of ties into why um, we wanted to do this this story about the first one, because the first one um, was considerably smaller with a more decided political bent. So can you set the scene a little bit for us in like a present day pride? What is the atmosphere like? What are some of the sounds, the colors that we'd see if we were to attend? Well, I mean, of course, you're going to see the the rainbow of colors. There's it's, it's a vibrant scene. Uh, you know, there's bustle. There's, you know, people seeing each other. And, you know, it, it's it's not like it's not unlike other kind of um, street festivals that occur um, in other communities or for other purposes. And and what's the importance of this festival? Well, it's been held um, in Michigan since 1972. Um, it's held in June to mark the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, when the patrons of a Greenwich Village bar spontaneously fought back against the police raid. And there were several nights of rioting. They weren't going to take it anymore. I mean, they had decades of um, being subject to arrest or decades of being subject to um, being institutionalized because it was considered a mental illness. Um, family shunning and, and um, ostracization um, from the church, a younger generation decided that um, it was really important to commemorate the riots. And so in New York, they had um, the first Christopher Street Liberation Day in June of 1970. And then over the years, um, more and more cities started joining in. And so if I make sure I hear you correctly, this this fest, along with a lot of the fests across the nation, are a way of folks asserting this is who, you know, this is who we are. We're no longer going to put, like, we're never longer going to hide in the shadows because you're not accepting of us. We're accepting of ourselves. That, that's absolutely the germ of it. Um, but oftentimes people are going, you know, to Motor City Pride or other prides with not necessarily knowing its origin. It's certainly transformed at different moments in time mm. where sometimes it's more of a celebration of community and sometimes it's more of a moment of protest. But I want to go back to what you've already said about why you wrote the comic book about the original First Pride. Um, can you just talk about that? You know, articles and, and talks come and go and you don't always necessarily reach a wide audience. There's also kind of this accessibility and reaching an audience that um, that people don't always read history or queer stories in that that kind of appealed to me and then um, you know my friend Isabel um, had been a student at the College of Creative Studies um, and I remember seeing her first student show and um, being dazzled by her work can you tell me a little bit about what this what people would expect to see if they were to read it 
it starts with um, kind of talking about how it was organized and how it was inspired and, and kind of the impetus came from um, this, this um, woman named Gay Whiteside, who was the leader in the first lesbian specific group in Detroit called the Daughters of Belitis. And she knew about these events in Chicago and New York, and she was kind of perturbed that nothing had happened in Detroit. So she got the ball rolling, but then other groups kind of became involved, particularly campus groups. So part of the comic tells, you know, the story of the planning, including this great drag pageant um, at a bar in Lansing, whose winner ended up leading the parade, uh, leading the march um, in Detroit. And I'll note that, um, that the text is entirely quoted material, except for dates and places. After the break, the first march, the fight against HIV, AIDS, and anti-gay rhetoric, and what the past means for Pride today. As Michigan's leading statewide business advocacy organization, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce is on the job every day standing up for job providers in the legislative, political, and legal arenas. We are the unified voice of thousands of members who employ over one million Michiganders. We work with trade associations and local chambers of commerce of every size and kind in all 83 counties of the state. We know business in Michigan. Learn more today about how we can protect, connect, and strengthen your business. Whether that's advocating on your behalf at the Capitol, helping meet your informational training and networking needs, or boosting your bottom line visibility and voice, we're on the job for you. Make my chamber your chamber. Go to mychamber.com, that's M-I-C-H-A-M-B-E-R.com, to learn more now. And we're back speaking to historian Tim Resloff, who just released a comic book about the first Detroit Pride Parade, which took place 50 years ago this June. Can you set the scene for us across the nation at the time as it relates to LGBTQ rights, particularly? So um, 1972, you know, this period of, of fervent that's known as gay liberation was kind of picking up steam across the country. But, you know, what was then kind of known basically as gay life largely centered around um, bars and commercial nightlife and kind of more more private spaces. There'd been some new organizations that had just started. Um, there was one surviving organization from the 1960s called One in Detroit um, that was made up primarily of established, mostly white, middle-class men, largely suburban, who were really closeted. Um, and and to them, the idea of marching in the streets was appalling because, hmm. you know, they they had they had their lives to um, safeguard. But Brooke, a younger generation didn't have that mindset. Can you describe a little bit about what the fear was for them at that time? At the time, it was still criminal. So people risked arrest 
and people certainly were still being arrested in the early 1970s. The climate and the atmosphere in Michigan, um, in some ways, was harsh. Um, there was a lot of ridicule. Um, but there's also kind of this, this um, political and cultural vein of progressivism. But people were still scared that day. The only woman to speak that day was a young lesbian um, named Susan Swope, who um, who used a pseudonym um, when she wrote in the Gay Liberator newspaper. Um, she used Susan Williamson. And she was actually still heterosexually married at the time that she gave her speech. And she had just been kind of exploring her lesbian self. So she was very nervous about um, you know, maybe being shown on TV. Um, but in the end, she decided that it was too important to kind of give a speech and to, to speak out and to, to have her voice heard. As you were sp- speaking to before, you know, the festival, the march, it's evolved over the years. Sometimes it's more celebratory. Sometimes it can be more about the issues um, and advocating for those issues. As we've gone, as we move from seventy two to twenty twenty two, what are the key dates along the way that uh, kind of exemplify the evolution of what this event means, but also what it means for our society to evolve with the LGBTQ community? When Anita Bryant um, emerged in the late nineteen seventies, um, she is part of a backlash against gay rights that was going on, and she led a campaign in Dade County, Florida, to repeal their gay rights ordinance. And she launched a national campaign called Save Our Children Mm. um, because under her mind, you know, gay people couldn't reproduce, so they had to recruit. Um, And in response to her, people in Michigan, particularly involved in the Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit, thought it was important to to be ready in case Anita Bryant came to Detroit. Mm. It led to the formation of an organization called the the Michigan Organization for Human Rights. Ah, and then where did it go from there? That was the precursor and led to Equality Michigan now. Uh, so there were several years when more kind of took over having this annual event. Um, and then in 1989, they decided that rather than have a parade, it was more important to have a march. This is in the middle of the the HIV AIDS crisis when government inaction meant the death of a lot of gay and bisexual men. So they decided to move, you know, the big march to Lansing um, is kind of the start of um, what's now Michigan Pride. But people in Detroit continued to start having some kind of celebration or festival, um, first on the Wayne State campus, and then at some point, some organizers moved it out to Royal Oak. Um, it was held at, at Oakland Community College for several years. And it moved um, to Ferndale and became a street fair there. Um, and then in 2011 is when they moved it back to Detroit. I have one clarification question. Why did the festival change locations over the years? I think part of it had to do with who was who was doing the organizing. Okay. Um, but then, you know, the other piece of this um, is, of course, particularly in Metro Detroit, all of these developments are against, uh, against the backdrop of kind of the racial dynamics of this region. 
Um, so I, there was a point where, you know, much of the white gay world of Metro Detroit had moved to the suburbs. Another thing that happened is kind of there developed this simultaneous flourishing of specifically black gay culture. So in the mid-1990s, um, there's the emergence of the Hotter Than July celebration, hmm. which is a specifically um, African-American gay event that's been held, you know, every year since. Um, that's specific to Detroit, um, is predominantly um, people of color. And what other, what other particular political aims have there been over the years in alignment with these festivals? You know, as society has evolved over time, I'm curious how that has evolved. I think issues of having to do with, with how transgender people are treated in society, a move in a direction of appreciating um, how sexuality and gender can be fluid. I think those have become, you know, kind of part of the dialogue um, and part of the message um, in many in many respects. Um, but, you know, some events are more political than others, and I, I, I don't know to the extent that, um, you know, visibility itself is kind of a political statement. What is uh, the significance of the Pride being in downtown Detroit? You know, obviously, as the largest city in the state, it's important. When when it moved to Detroit from Ferndale, there was a lot of throwback attitudes about the city. As a historian and archivist, I remember, like, gathering, you know, images online from that first event. And it was just curious to me that people were coming to this event from all over. So I think there had been some anxiety about, you know, if we have events in, Flint, in, in Detroit, that people won't come, that there was still kind of this anxiety, um, white anxiety about Detroit. I'm, I'm very glad they've been proven wrong. Are there any stories from your experiences at your previous experience at Pride that you'd want to share? Well, I'm, you know, this is, this is not a Pride per se because it was um, it was specifically a, a march on Washington. And when I went in 1993, Between the Lines had just started, and I was writing for Between the Lines, and so I had a press pass. And I remember there was a catwalk where you could, like, crouch and take pictures. If you've been to Washington, you know kind of the National Mall where you're in front of the Capitol, you see the Washington Monument, and then way in the distance, you see the Lincoln Memorial. And, um, and I remember being on that catwalk and looking out on a sea of people. And as um, a kid who grew up in Flint, who had a, a rough adolescence in high school in the early 80s, and thought I was the only one in the world, you know, just kind of the experience of seeing that many queer people was life-changing. And I think that is one of the things about pride. And you go to your first pride and it's like, all of these people around you are like family. So we've been through a lot of history today. What are the key takeaways? I just think it's important to understand that um, 
there are people who've come before who, you know, in some instances put themselves on the line to kind of be true to themselves. And, you know, there have been moments of backlash and some of these tropes, the idea that that the queer community um, is bent on grooming young children with our stories um, really is reminiscent of some of the rhetoric that Anita Bryant used. Um, and here it is again, the importance of LGBTQ plus people to share our own stories and make ourselves be seen to counter the stereotypes. Um, I think, you know, that's a lesson from the history. Um, it's also a lesson that can be drawn from today. You can pick up a copy of Tim Retzloff and Isabel Claire Paul's comic, Come Out in Detroit, for free at Motor City Pride, the Detroit Historical Museum, and numerous other locations, including Cass Cafe in Detroit. For a complete list, check out comeoutindetroit.com. Motor City Pride kicks off at 1 p.m. Saturday, June 11th at Hart Plaza and runs through the weekend, with a parade at noon downtown on Sunday, June 12th. Sounds from Pride in this episode were provided by festival organizers. This episode was produced by me and Darcy Moran. Anjanette Delgado and Marianne Struman are our executive producers. Peter Batia is our editor. The music for the show is called Fort Trumbull and was produced by DJ Lost Boy. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you like the show, leave a rating, subscribe, and share it with your friends and your family. See you next week.